Hi, everyone. Michael Ray, all the way from sunny Australia again with my co-host and legend, Reham <laughs> Nessa. Give me too much credit. All the way from? UK. Um, and quite su sunny, actually, for the first time in a while. We've got uh, the far forecast for a sunny week. So we're really excited about that. We just had some snow last week. So thank you for the, for the sunshine, Michael. Thank you for sending it our way. Right. Tonight, we're going to be talking about the power of the mind and who's actually in control of, of who. Do we create our thoughts or do our thoughts create us? Where do our thoughts go? Our thoughts reside in our brain or our heart? Where are our emotions derived from? Do, our, do we elicit emotions or are emotions uh, a result of external um, influences on us? All of these wonderful questions and confusing ones as well, which I think have been debated and philosophized for such a long time. What do you think? I agree. I agree, Michael. Um, who's in control? Is it the brain? Is it the heart? Is it the mind? Is it the body? Um, when we're operating in our day-to-day -day life, some people actually would say the body because it actually makes us move forward. It, it um, you know, our heart beats on its own. We're not in control of that. You know, if the blood doesn't flow, then we, then our cells don't get oxygenated and they can't survive. So that's the viewpoint from one camp. Another camp is it's our heart. The heart is the central muscle. It is in, in, in all totality, the controlling muscle and organ in our lives, because without it, the whole entire body would stop. Now, the third camp is the brain. And we want to understand more about the brain, because that's our topic for today. And maybe we could dip into the other ones later. But the brain is a powerful muscle in and of itself, too. The brain can can work on low oxygen, depleted nutrients, and still get us to survive. Now, the power of that brain, Michael, I know you're going to tell us a little bit more from the psychology background that you have, the impact and the significance of the psychology of the brain on the power of our minds. Take it mm. away, Michael. Our brain is basically the prism in which we view life through. However, we can control that and it's affected by our culture, our experiences, the stories basically we tell ourselves. If I hold up a $100 note and we say, right, what value is that? Everyone will say, well, it's, it's $100. Well, no, it's a couple of cents worth of paper, but we assign the value of $100 to it. And what value do we place on the actual amount of a hundred dollars well for some people it's an immense amount of money for other people it's trivial for some people they would do anything for that hundred dollars at this point in time because it enables them to do things so it's all about the stories we tell and the values we assign to certain things um so the mind is a very powerful thing and if we take it right out to one extreme to say um, a schizophrenic. Their mind creates a reality that is only real to them, but it is 100% real. Their physiological, their actual body will respond in a way as to what is going on in their mind is real. If there's something threatening or something uh, nice, their body responds as if it was 100% real in front of them. 
So some people aren't able to control their mind, but most of us are. And it's like any other physical skill that we learn, whether it be concentration, whether it be mathematics, whether it be listening, empathetic listening, it takes a little bit of effort and a little bit of application for it to start to get a little bit easier. Things like um, meditation is one way to step back. A form of external meditation is journaling. So writing down your thoughts and your feelings and then going back and reading them when you're not in the middle of those thoughts, situations and circumstances and seeing how you feel about them later once some of the emotion is removed from it. So what do you think, Graham? I agree. The, the, it's powerful how we assign value to concepts and ideas. And it's powerful, and I use the word powerful because we then believe the power that we give it. For example, what came up for me when you were talking was virtual reality and video gaming, as you know, you and I have spoken about before. And the impact of putting on those virtual reality goggles or being engrossed in a video game and feeling the feelings of those that you were engaging with and your body responding physiologically to those feelings as if you yourself, the gamer or the visual, vir virtual reality you know, um, player is actually seeing and believing that you're experiencing it. So there's a connection like you're saying between the mind and the body and the heart. The other connection it, or example, sh should I say that makes that connection for me is online dating. And you wanna talk about that one, uh, Michael? I know that um, video calls, can create that that mindset of um, a shift in psychology. And, and I want to hear your thoughts on that one. Well, we have the um, catfishing, I think it's called, current thing that goes on with video calling where people aren't actually who they say they are. They promote a certain personality or type and people become engrossed and attached and... Um, actually have real physical feelings to a, a perception of how someone is. So I think uh, what happens is we get the oxytocin, we get the connection, we get all of the rest of it, even having never met this person before. So we create that. They don't. It's what we're searching for. And we want that hit because these are feel-good chemicals, the dopamine, the endorphins, all of the rest of it. So a lot of people have their hearts broken, seriously. And um, I'm in no way trying to be dismissive of you know people's real heartache and uh, anguish that is felt when these relationships go wrong. But it just shows the power of of this uh, video dating and all the rest of it. So you've fallen in love with an idea, with a concept of someone, not an actual person. Whereas in real life dating, you get to see everything. It's the nuance. I think it's a little bit like uh, old vinyl records compared to CDs. You get to hear everything and see everything. You get to pick up on feelings and you get to see how they react with other people. Because of course, when you're online with them, it's best foot forward, present themselves well. You may not even be looking at a real picture of them. 
um, their reactions are considered when it's by text. They're not responding in, in a normal environment. Whereas if you're out and you see the way that it's either a little bit rude to the waiter, they're a bit dismissive to the maitre d', there might be some red flags there, but when they're with you, their focus is 100%. They're so attentive and they say all the right things. And that's more about you convincing yourself that they're the one for you than them actually being the one for you, I think. I agree 100%. And I'll take it a step further. 75% of what we learn about a human being is from their nonverbal communication. And you can't see that from a screen. That turns a, a relationship into a situationship. And I know I advise my clients a lot consistently that when you first meet someone, even in, in you know, struggle, it, it, it's a struggle in, during COVID. I understand that. Um, but whenever you meet someone in that first month, try to meet them face to face, try to see who they are and really get a sense of who they're showing up to be physically verbally and, and, and non-verbally, because that's how you really get a sense of the essence of that person, how they are, how they show up, how they, like you were mentioning, how they interact with other people, who they are without the script. People can only script their behavior for so long and then it becomes uncovered. The masks have to come off at some point. And, and you can't really dictate what life is going to look like every second of the day uh, or every second of a you know um, a get together so that's where you really see how that person really is you know one other example that comes to mind relating to the power and the psychology of the brain is one that's true I know for for many uh, solo moms and solo dads is the separation between them and a child especially if they're going to the other co-parent or parallel parent. And that's when you have two distinct mindsets. Um, and Michael, jump in at any point, because um, I know you, you can relate to this as well. It's that concept of, um, am I going to think about my separation with, from my child in a way that will diminish me, that will eat away at my self-confidence or my ability as a parent or what may be happening to them or my concerns about them and really spiraling downwards in a catastrophizing, self-fulfilling, negative prophecy of worries, doubts, guilt, possibly even shame um, and fear? Or am I going to choose the approach of, I did my due diligence, I've done my duty towards my child. Now they're in the care of the other parent. And I'm gonna get on with me. I'm gonna invest in me. I'm going to self care, um, invest in my own self care. In other words, I'm going to, uh, you know, take some time to do whatever else that I've been wanting to do so that I'm replenished when my child comes. So I'm in a better state of mind. So I'm healthier mentally and physically. Um, catching up on sleep is an example um, uh, that I completely relate to. So um, those are some ways that the psychology of the mind, the psychology of the brain, and the, the values and the thoughts that we assign concepts and ideas can be so empowering or diminishing. What are your thoughts, Michael? Yeah, it's, it's something I can relate to so 
so strongly, Reham, and especially in the space I work with, with a lot of fathers who um, struggle getting to see their kids every other weekend and uh, maybe one day during the week. They worry about the impact of what's being done or said to the child at the other parent's home, which may or may not have any any basis in, in reality, but it serves no good because it's completely out of out of your control. And the only thing you can do is assign your values to you and don't respond in kind because you need to be the bigger person, man, woman, non-binary, who, whoever it is. Values can't be transactional. They can't be contingent. They have to be hardwired into you. This is how I act regardless of what I'm, what I'm uh, exposed to or whatever. If someone else behaves badly, I don't have to accept it, but I definitely don't respond in kind. And you can be quite forward and say, you know what, I'm sorry, but I won't participate in this conversation because I can see it going nowhere. And it's just going to uh, either escalate to the point where I'm not going to be proud of myself and I'm not, I'm not a hundred percent confident that I'm strong enough not to resist the temptation to do what I wouldn't be proud of. So thank you, but, but no, thank you. And so that don't buy into it is, is what I'm trying to say, but we that don't also plays to... into the code of ethics and code of conduct that we talk about all the time. Yeah. Sorry to jump in. Go ahead. And, but we don't have to assign good or bad values to everything either. Sometimes it just is. And acceptance is a thing. So it's just, you know what? Not everything that's confronted can be changed, but nothing can be changed if it's not confronted. And you need to be able to tell the difference. So my time apart from my child, nothing I can do about it. What can I do? I can improve myself. I can try and find the growth. How, how can I improve from this? Is it a time for reading? Is it a time for, as you say, catching up on sleep, exercise, so that when my child comes back, it's 100% focus on them. So, you know, and it's all about loving them. Don't question them. Don't put them in the middle. Don't Please, if nothing good can come from your child being um, uncomfortable. Yeah. Yeah. You know, speaking bad about the other parent will harm your child. And one day, one day you're going to be in a position where whether it's your son or your daughter at a graduation or their marriage, where they're going to want both of you there. This is what your child wants both of you there and if they're uncomfortable if they're fearful like oh is this you know they will eat the stress that you're you're of course and you're going to make it unbearable so you know as I say to dads all the time who say you know how important is for you to be a good dad oh it's the most important thing in the world really yep what would you do if you get absolutely anything what about treat mum with respect oh no she's you know mate see so you will do almost anything for your child. No, but she, but it's not good for your child. Oh, but she, no, that's fine. If 
that's fine, but listen to the story you're telling me. I will do absolutely anything for my child except. So what else, what other accepts are there? Because you won't change her just as she won't change you. So, you know, we don't have to agree on anything, but we have to agree, agree disagree agreeably. You yeah. know what? Let's disagree. I don't want to argue, but when he's with me, this is what we're doing, and I'm explaining to you not not to be, um, you know, aggressive or not to be, you know, but I, I want you to understand, and um, just so there's no misunderstanding, these are the rules we have at my house. You're welcome to have whatever rules you want at your house, but it would just be good if little Johnny or Sarah or whoever knew that it's fine to have two sets of rules. My daughter and I, we have restaurant rules and home rules. So at restaurant rules, but no hands, no licking the plates, stuff like that. But at home, home rules, sure, you know, lick the plate, it was yummy, stuff it? like that. Yeah. <laughs> it's called situational awareness, which is great for children to have. It's like, you know, swearing. Some of us swear, but we don't swear in front of kids or women. So that's situational awareness. So as long as your child know, and as long as you're not tearing strips off them, oh, that comes from dad's house. We won't tolerate that here. As long as you're able to remind them, honey, while we're here, you know, bedtime is this time. I understand when you're at dad's bedtime is that time, and that's fine too, but just here, bedtime is this time. Okay with that. And uh, then there's no tension for the child. There's no, well, mum lets me do this and dad lets me do that. Because for our children, our children's love, they should never feel that our love is conditional or Spot contingent. On. Yeah. So if, when I'm at dad's, if I mention mum, oh, he goes crook. So I, I, I can't do it. So all of a sudden he feels, well, my love's contingent. But that flows on later in life to my acceptance within the group is contingent on me fitting in. So bowing to peer pressure, being one of the boys or girls or not speaking up when, you know, someone says, let's all go out and sneak some alcohol and, at this party and stuff like that. It's you don't want them to be a follower. You want them to know, you know, my love and my respect for you isn't contingent on a certain set of behaviours. Yeah. So regardless, and that's what we need to do as parents and just say, I'm not trying to be, you know, controlling or confrontational or anything like this, but I want you to know because if, if you really don't agree, then we need to come up with something that we do agree on. But we need to both go, it's a compromise. Yeah. It's not your rules or my rules or your rules despite my rules. It's our rules. And they can be two separate sets for each household. Yeah. It can be an eight o'clock bedtime at yours, but with me, because I have him on the weekends and we can sleep in a bit, it can be an 8.30 bedtime, can't it? Well, yeah, it's sort of, yeah, I can see where you're going there. But as long as you don't treat it like, well, dad's house is all fun and mum's house is, you know, all work or vice versa, then, you know, you're the one that will put those values on your kids' perception and experience of it. 
Absolutely. And, you know, we could talk about parenting forever, Michael. Um, and one of the things that reminds me of this, this concept of values that you brought up is illustrated in four movies. And I know we've talked about several. So um, The Matrix, when it comes to the power of the mind, um, really impacted me because it was about seeing the falsehood of the world that we live in versus reality. And then the Terminator, you know, will the machines rule the world kind of thing? Are they really in control of our minds, our, bo our bodies, our, our society? I know there were two movies that really stood out for you that also had the same impact or similar impact. You want to share those? Yep. Well, the, the other one for me, the main one for me was uh, Space Odyssey 2001 with old hell taking over control of everything. And we, we inherently have this mistrust of artificial intelligence. Oh, machines running a thing, you know, do they have the right emotions and compassion and empathy? How do you treat that? They haven't experienced what we've experienced. But then the counterpoint to that, which we'll get to a bit later, was Wizard of Oz. Yeah. Now, the thing with hell that made me uh, realise, hell is basically our minds are artificial intelligence. So, but we control it. We're sitting there with our finger on the little red button go, you know what? I'm going to turn this off because I don't like where hell's going here. He's about to lock. I've forgotten the gentleman's name that got locked out of the uh, spaceship and wouldn't let him back in because it was the best for survival. So we have these thoughts that take over, whether they be negative, whether they, they be uh, a paranoid or some just negative, negative talk. So disordered thinking that takes over. And we need to be able to stop and go, well, you know what? That thought doesn't serve me. Look at the harm it's doing. Look at the negative self-talk, whether it be body image, whether it be, um, again, our self-esteem a lot of the times is contingent. So I failed at that. I'm worthless. I achieved that. Oh, I have great self-esteem all of a sudden. No, they're stories you're telling yourself. And it's the same as though as hell's taking over. So we need to be able to step back and go, well, I'm hearing that. I'm hearing this negative self-talk. A lot of it is imposter syndrome. I still remember the first time I got up to speak to a room full of about 280 um, kindergarten directors, a bloke who just normal and I was terrified and I'm thinking they're all early learning educators and I had nothing to offer and if it hadn't have been for my wonderful I I would have pulled out it became I became that anxious and that worried about what I was going to say and I became moody and ripping up speeches you know talks that I was going no that won't do that I'm not qualified to do that and then it basically came down to, you know what? What am I doing? Like just, and then I would listen to a little voice and that's what I say to my daughter all the time. You've got to look at it like the feeling you get before you get on the roller coaster. The yeah. nerves, the jury, do I really want to do this? Isn't that, you know what? Get in, strap in and just do it because at the end of it, you're going to look back and go, wasn't that bad. It, it was a bit frightening during it, but we got through it. And now next time I'm going to get straight on that roller coaster and it gets easier and easier. 
And it's like in The Wizard of Oz where Dorothy went walking all around looking for courage and uh, wisdom and uh, brains a and, heart. and a heart. Yeah. Yeah. And gets to the end and behind that big scary green curtain with a big voice and all the green smoke and all the rest of it and the wizard turned out to be a little man. Just a little man pushing levers and you know, Glenda the Good Witch said to Dorothy, you had the power the whole time, my dear, the whole time. Everything you searched for was within you. And it's that self-doubt, that, that negative talk, that's the opportunity for growth. That's the stuff. It's just your body's way of telling you, you know what? This stuff's important. Pay attention. This, this needs to be applied in a good way and pay attention to the ride on that roller coaster. Take it all in because at the end of it, it will serve you well. Absolutely. There are two concepts that actually come up for me when you're talking, um, especially about the roller coaster. So each time we experience uh, imposter syndrome or we're about to engage in an act that we want to do, but we're afraid to take on, it's us going outside of our comfort zone. So some people can go out of their comfort, sto- comfort zone by just standing on the edge, right on the edge seeing that other side and saying, I'm just going to stand right here and I'm going to take one step and that's okay. And some people will leap into the unknown and go outside of their comfort zone and really explore and expand their range as human beings. And that's what's so beautiful that we can take the values that we have around these concepts of, you know, how our brain functions, who's in control and testing that control by going outside of our comfort zone in a way that won't harm us or hinder us. Um, and we'll never know until we experience it. Like you said beautifully, it's about the journey. And, and it's not about the task. It's not about the outcome. It's about the journey. So, uh, you know, one of the, the tips that I always mention is try to concentrate on the process, less the outcome, because then you're really learning and engaging and expanding um, our range and our, our reflection and our ability to learn about ourselves and the world around us when we're really in the, in the journey on the path. Um, and the other concept that comes up for me is how does our brain protect us? So our brain is programmed to protect us from harm, from anything that could prevent us from surviving. And sometimes our brain protects us by tightening that safety vest around us to give us that sense of control, but it's a false sense of control. And that false sense of control can prevent us from going outside of that comfort zone that we are so comfortable staying in. It could also prevent us from experiencing new opportunities, from engaging in new relationships, from learning about our past and growing beyond it. And so the power of the mind is so awe-inspiring for me. And I'm, I'm guessing the same for you because you're studying psychology, Michael. Um, and, and so one of those theories or concepts, frame of references that we can use is the concept of the motorway or also known as the highway in some hemispheres. Um, so imagine you're standing on the side of the motorway and there are cars you know, rushing by. Some of them are moving slowly. Some of them are moving 
at medium speed and some of them are moving really, really fast. Now those are our thoughts, those cars. And the speed is at the speed of the thoughts that are coming to us. Some thoughts come to us and they linger and they're really slow and they don't leave our minds. And then some of them come and then disappear. And then some of them just whiz by, you didn't even realize um, because they were a mile a minute. Now the question is, where should we stand in relationship to our thoughts? And many of you might be thinking, maybe in a car, maybe in the driver's seat, maybe in the passenger seat. But I'm here to tell you that the best place to be is on the sideline, away from the cars, looking at those cars, because our thoughts are merely thoughts. They're not reality. They're not real. They're not truth. They're just thoughts. They're ways for us to experience life, to engage in what external stimuli is coming our way or internal stimuli that's coming up for us. So those thoughts, when we're in, in a car that is equal to our thoughts, we're being run by those thoughts. So being that the title of this podcast is The Power of the Brain, how are we giving our thoughts power over us? What are your thoughts, Michael? Oh, exactly. I, my analogy has always been uh, with Hal from 2001, if we let our thoughts drive us, all of a sudden we've stepped out from behind the driver's wheel where we don't consciously control or evaluate our thoughts. It's called metacognition, thinking about our thinking yeah. and seeing where, where the problems are. And we have certain responses. Post-traumatic stress is, is an extreme example where certain triggers can elicit um, physical responses, taking people right back to the initial uh, trauma. Yeah. Um, but I think as happened is we've gotten into that into that car, which is a vehicle for creating our reality. And we started off driving and all of a sudden we've slid across and now we're in the passenger seat and yep. our mind has become hell and it's running, running the show rather than us steering the car. So we need to be able to go, you know what, stop. This is counterproductive, unhelpful um, thoughts that are creating this perception, this subjective reality of what I'm experiencing. Yeah. If I actually step back out of the car and look at the car and go, that's interesting. And I, I like to be able to laugh at it and go, <laughs> you nearly got me. I nearly, but no, I'm not going to, I'm not going to listen to you. And it's, it's not about ignoring or being, um, you know, off with the fairies and just go, you know, what? I'm just going to ignore, you know, my broken leg and, you know, soldier on and all the rest of it. it it's a matter of really evaluating and looking at it and going, you know what? I'm not going to follow that same pattern of thought that all my life feeling not good enough, all my life seeking external um, valuation, yeah. being outcome driven. And that's yeah. why I say to people, the problem with outcome driven, I'm going to do this and do this and do this and do this because then this will happen. The only problem is life doesn't work like that. So being outcome driven, as you say, rather than process driven, I'm going to do this because it's the right thing because it aligns with my authentic values. Then the next thing falls into place. Well, I did that. And regardless of the outcome of that, 
I did it because it was me and it's because what I wanted to do. And now I've built onto that and I can take the next step and the next step. I'm in a very privileged and lucky situation, like really fortunate where because of my values, I can turn things down. Values rather than being limiting, that they actually focus you on, on what your real opportunities are because it teaches you what to ignore, what's just background noise and what's really important. So, you know, I've been able to go turn down things. I've been asked to do talks for some men's rights groups. And to me, they're just not, you know, because they're, they're fairly toxic. The ones that I've been asked to speak to, they, they live in a, and I, again, I don't mean to dismiss anyone's reality, but they, they live in that uh, victimhood type mentality and they're very yeah. angry. Yeah. So I've, I've been able to say to them, no, and, you know, it may have cost me financially, but it just wasn't something that aligned with what I wanted to do. And through that, other opportunities have arisen now where I get to speak to women's groups and I actually get to influence women's groups by showing them not all men that advocate for men do it in such a counterproductive way. And I've been able to get some women's groups now as allies actually advocating for fathers that's as amazing. well because Good that's what I say. We've got to all get into the one tent together instead of this confirmational bias that happens today through the internet and social media. You have a thought, you express it on social media, everyone else who thinks like you is sent through the algorithms to do it. So all of a sudden you're like, I'm right. You know, and I'll say to people, is there any chance you're wrong? No. And that's why I say, well, we've got no point. If, you know, the only thing I know for sure is what I know for sure. Tomorrow I might not be sure about. So um, I like to seek out different viewpoints and different things because I've had some amazing epiphanies with, with women where I've just gone, you know what? I never would have thought of that. I never would like, thank you. And now I've got to go back and check myself because there are a lot of things that were built on my assumptions and my subjective reality that have led me to other conclusions that now simply don't hold water. Yeah. And, and to be open-minded is the solution to that is to listen to those viewpoints, to have these conversations. That's why we have the hashtag many men, many conversations and many women, many conversations, because it's about those conversations. It's the exchange between two human beings or more about what's true for them. It's not just the concepts. It's not just the umbrella topics. It's about the core values that connect two human beings or more together. And that's you know, the question that you asked that, that connects that for me is there any way you might be wrong is so impactful, Michael, because I'll give you an example. If we're walking and linking it to the power of the mind, if we're walking down the street and we see somebody that we, we know and we're you know smiling, we're about to say hi, and they're rushing off and they're not noticing or potentially not responding um, to us because they're, you know, they're busy with whatever, our minds immediately will make a story about it. And it'll try to solve the riddle of why didn't that person acknowledge me? Now, in an unhealthy mindset, what 
someone might do is, are they mad at me? Are they, did they not see, are they dissing? What is wrong with that person? You know what? I hate them and start catastrophizing. Do they have more important things than me to, to say hello to? And, you know, the, it's, it's that cycle of, of craziness of believing in the story that our mind makes to protect us from being hurt. And what it does is we unravel it and make it a chaotic mess and believe in it, thus jumping not only in the driver's seat, but from the driver's seat into the passenger seat, from the passenger seat into the boot, also known as the trunk, and staying there and saying, this is where I belong. So remember everyone, we stand on the sidelines of the motorway or the highway. We do not jump into these thoughts because that person that we know that passed us by might have not even seen us. So the reality of the situation was they weren't even in that bubble, that thought of, oh, they're dissing us or we're not important enough or we're not you know, good enough or whatever. They didn't even see us. And that's how our brain works. So how are we allowing ourselves to think about, is there a way that we might be wrong about the perception or the story that we have spun for ourselves to better have clarity about the world around us? You had a really amazing example to add, and I think this will really solidify the point, Michael, um, about the oven and the window. So I'll let you, I'll let you share. I'm, I'm very big on restorative practices. So we worry well, let's about- Let's explain what they are first before we jump well, restorative practices to me things that you can do that will impact every area of your life sleep exercise good nutrition good good input into your mind so junk we have junk food for the brain as well so gossip negativity all of the rest of it 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 makes us um psychologically obese so oh beautiful yeah, fills our brain full of full of stuff that just poisons us. So I'd say I've got some wonderful friends who I love to death, but they practice, they have certain things where I just, you know, I, I'd love to sit here and chat, but, you know, you just feel like you need to go home and, and push a screwdriver into your ear after a while because it's just, you know, I, I understand your boss isn't nice. I understand that this, and I'm really here for you, but, uh, you know, I, I need to have some solutions, or I need to, I can only deal with so much of it at a time. So, you know, great, we'll catch up, we'll have a coffee, I'll listen to your problems, and I'll just be there for you, and I hope you feel better at the end of it. But I can't keep giving every day of this. I can't sit here every lunchtime and just, listen to it time after time after time when you're not going to take action on it. So the restorative practices, that's why I say, what we focus on is, is what we highlight. So cognitive biases, things that it's, if you ever said, gee, I like those cars, I wouldn't mind buying one, all of a sudden you see them everywhere. So it's like the squeak or the rattle in your car. Once you hear it, it drives you mad. You've got to find it things like that. So every now and again, that's where I say in my mental house, there's all these doors and windows. There are some doors that are shut tight because I know what's in there. I don't want to deal with it at the moment because I know, I know it's going to be hard and confrontational to deal with. And I don't have the time or the bandwidth or the energy at the moment, but 
it's there, it's labeled, I am going to have to open that door a bit at a time. And there are also the windows at which I view the world through. There's one window that I can pull out and through that window, it is the most beautiful, sunny summer's day with the garden and my daughter playing in it and the sprinkler going, we're running through the sprinkler and all of that. And I can sit there and I can look out through that and everything is great. There's another window I can look out through and it's all of my failures, my doubts, my all the rest of it. So every now and again, this is what meditation does. And this is what I do. I do a lot of walking when I can. And, you know, I walk and I think about all the things. Gratitude is a muscle that the more you do, the more, the more you get for it. You can be grateful for the smallest things. You can be grateful for nothing going wrong. Yeah. You know, it's so it doesn't actually have to be, I'm grateful for my job. It's I'm grateful that, you know, nothing is going wrong. And, but if something does go wrong, I'm grateful that I have the, the wherewithal to be able to deal with it or the energy at the moment to be able to deal with it. And it's also like our oven. We cook in it. It's great. We can see through the window. Every time we cook, we get a little bit of grime on the glass and we leave it. And it gets a bit more and a bit more and eventually we cannot even see through it. So the amount of effort it takes rather than just those few little restorative bits, just a little bit of a clean after each cook, we've got a scrub with the steel wool and the oven degreaser and it takes hours and it's a horrible job. And it's you put it off and put it off and put it off until it's nearly working. You know what? I'm going to buy another oven. Well, you don't get to do that with your mind or, or your life. Mm. So those restorative practices, we can't be living life in crisis all of the time. It's called an allostatic load that builds up the cortisol, the adrenaline, all the rest of it. It burns you out. It's no different when I used to train high-level athletes. Yeah. It was the recovery that was more important than the stimulus of the training. They could only train as much as much as they could recover. So some athletes recover really quickly. Other athletes take days to recover after a hard workout. If I kept pushing them or, or scheduling the workouts too frequently and they didn't recover in between, they would burn out. It's yeah. the difference between what we call in athletics overreaching, which is good, just trying to go slightly outside of your comfort zone versus overtraining, which can set everything back weeks and it's the same with our mental things. What are you doing to restore that balance? What are you doing to get back to home base before you go out and fight the hordes of day-to-day -day life again? Beautifully spoken and shared. And I love those two examples when you share them, Michael, because they're so impactful. Anybody can use them as quick, easy, restorative practices in their daily life when something happens that we don't expect. And we could just sit there and say, okay, which window am I choosing to look out? into the world which uh which way do i want to you know wipe off the grime from my oven um you know uh and 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 how much time do i want to put in to clearing that residue versus stepping back and just saying okay i know what i have to do and now i got to get it done um it's just the commitment of self-care that's so essential. Like you were saying, walking, um, you said journaling early, earlier, meditation, um, you know, being of service to others as well allows us to, to really understand the power of what gratitude really means.
and uh, the humility of being fortunate in our lives um, with so much compared to others that are less fortunate. Reflection, you know, is so impactful when it comes to difficulty instead of the power of the gab, it's the power of the mind and really thinking, okay, what could I do? What did I do first that led to this? What triggered this process? If it's PTSD, if it's CPTSD, seek counseling, seek therapy, you know, really invest in that. If it's not, and it's just old wounds and old history, then really sit there and reflect or stand and walk like you were saying, Michael, and, and really reflect on what's coming up and why, and how am I feeling about it? And why is this the feeling that I'm attaching to this thought, to, to this memory? And when we could process that and analyze and really engage with our experiences, past and current, that's when we learn, that's when we grow, and that's when we go outside of our comfort zone and become, you know, part of that journey. And it's not about part of the past, you know, where you're dipping back into the past and, oh, it's me, it's that victimhood mindset that you were saying earlier. It's about the victor mindset. It's about the victoriousness of us overcoming the negative pathways that we've connected in our brains to our experiences and reliving them in healthier, resilient ways of reference. So it's a, a, it's a landmark for me to remember and to think better of myself and to fill my proverbial cup instead of it's a way for me to beat myself down and to look at me, me or myself as a failure and what I couldn't achieve and will never achieve. So we have two windows to look out into the world. And the question is, which window do we wanna look out of? Always a pleasure, Michael. Um, as a quick reminder, everyone, these are conversation starters with blokes, their children and the women that support them. It's about many men, many conversations. Now the question is today, after following, liking, and sharing us, don't ever hesitate to comment and tell us, what are your core values? How are you creating a healthy mindset? How are you investing in your healthier restorative practices? How are you choosing to be in relation to your thoughts? Look forward to seeing you guys on the next podcast. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.